To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Emily Grafeo, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg, filling in for Vildana Hyrick. And this week on the show, well, if you wanted to pick a single day of market action to serve as a microcosm for the whole year, we got it this week. Stocks, bonds, and currency markets all had a collective freakout over this stubbornly high inflation. This after August's consumer price index came in a bit hotter than economists had expected. But it really highlighted what a tricky year it's been for balanced portfolios that invest in both stocks and bonds. So how are managers of those funds dealing with this year's turbulence? We'll get into it with a fund manager with a balanced fund who's beating his benchmark pretty nicely this year. But first, Emily, I got to say thank you for filling in uh, for Vildana, who's off again this week, even though this is going to cause even more anxiety for Vildana uh, herself. (laughs) I I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. You'd think, you know, she would go on that vacation and she would be more relaxed, but I'm not sure if that is the case. (laughs) I know. We'll we'll work on it. But the only rule you have to know, Emily, the only ground rule for a co-host is you have to laugh enthusiastically at my jokes. Which I will. You know, Absolutely. You will? And okay, I will add you to my professional network on LinkedIn. <laughs> yes. Yes. Finally. <laughs> finally. Because I got to say, Vildana is not very good at that requirement of laughing at my jokes. I think it's a, you know, she eats nothing but cauliflower. I think it's a it's a protein deficiency or some kind of vit- vitamin deficiency. That That's the story I'm going with. Yeah. Yeah. Too many chickpeas. Not enough meat. <laughs> Too many chickpeas. <laughs> But one thing she's great at, and she is a great journalist, and she's great at finding excellent guests for this podcast, including this week. Uh, she uh, brought this week's guests on and then abandoned us, but um, we're very excited <laughs> to have them. Why don't you tell, tell the listeners who this week's guest is? So today on the show, we have George Cipollini, and he is a portfolio manager of Penn Mutual Asset Management, and he also co-leads the management of the balanced income strategy at the firm. So, George, welcome to the show. And most exciting is you're a Philly guy. So the most important first question is you got to give us your cheesesteak place. What's your what's your favorite cheesesteak place? Okay, so I'm going to give a little bit of a nuanced answer, if that's okay. It's definitely not Pat's and Geno's, which a lot of out out of towners tend to like. <laughs> um, love love John's roast pork, which again, in the name, it says roast pork and not cheesesteaks, but they make a great cheesesteak. But the best sandwich in Philly, if anyone wants to go, it's in the Reading Terminal Market, and you go to Denex and you get a brisket of beef sandwich. It's outrageous. It's even, I mean, I think it's better than a, than a cheesesteak. Right. So that's my critique. I'll accept that answer, actually. I, I, you know, I've heard about that place for years. I don't think I've ever actually had a Denix uh, roast beef, but uh, good. That's some good, solid research, Philly research right there, Emily. This guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah, that sounds that sounds delicious. I think we'll have to have another episode where we just talk about Miss uh, Brisket and Phil, other Philly cuisine. Yes, yes, absolutely. But George, why don't you start us off and talk a little bit about your current role um, and your background and how you got to you know where you are today at Penn Mutual. Sure, absolutely. So uh, a little bit of a different path than I think most portfolio managers in terms of getting to where I am today at Penn Mutual, which we're at a great place and we're grateful to be here. But um, but I grew up doing concrete work with my family in Philadelphia um, at, at around 18, 19 years old. I didn't take my SATs. I didn't do 
any of that good stuff, had no plans to go to college. Then I met my wife, who's from South Philadelphia and is pretty strong-willed, and, and she said, you're going to go to college. And so I did. I listened. And, um, and you know, it was a great path for me. We ended up going to uh, a junior college, transferred over to Drexel University, worked on the floor of the Philly Stock Exchange back in, in the late 90s. So um, really, the, the inception of my career was very much impactful to me as it is to most young people in terms of I got to see an incredible boom in terms of the tech bubble and then a bust after. And so that really was the inception of my career, which kind of led me to fortune, fortunately to a, a small little investment shop called the Killen Group in Berwyn, PA. It was at break even at the time. We got no bonuses our first few years in the business. Um, but, but eventually we grew this small little income fund called the Berwyn Income Fund from about 45, 50 million in assets all the way up to two and a half billion in assets um, at, at peak. And what we did was a little different. We were a little off the beaten, beaten path in terms of our strategy. We were a small firm with 12 people. So we were very independent minded, very long-term focused, traditional value investors. And what we did was our, our director of research, Lee Grout, had this great investment process. And I just kind of took it um, from what he did on the equity side and applied it to the world of income and the fixed income and the high yield bonds and investment grade bonds and preferred stocks and convertible bonds. And the process really worked. It, it, it's, a, it's a strategy that's differentiated in terms of we are very flexible. We can invest across market caps. Uh, we can invest across a company's capital structure. And with the sole goal, really, of just adding value within this universe, we don't want we don't want necessarily the highest yielding securities. Uh, we want the companies with and securities with the best balance of risk and reward um, in terms of that, um, you know, that whole direction. So that's a little quick and dirty. I ended up at Penn Mutual just just a few years ago. Um, you know, we sold our firm, the Killing Group, and and after taking some time off. Uh, wanted to stay in the business and keep doing this because it really is a passion, and 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 I just felt like I could, I, st- I still had some uh, some gas in the tank, and 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 wanted to contribute somewhere, and was fortunate enough to join Penn Mutual, with, which has you know a great staff of over thirty people on the investment team. They have a ton of resources, manage over thirty billion in assets. Uh, the bulk of that being the insurance assets. And then the resources, again, from a marketing and support standpoint to uh, start a new fund like, like, like our product, so imbalanced income. So just really grateful to be back in it. And uh, we have a two-year track record now. And so far, so good. We're, we're you know, very, very highly ranked at the moment in terms of our Morningstar category. And as you both mentioned, it came right back into some really incredible and uh, incredible times and historic times for sure. That that's a great backstory, George. You know, uh, I'm glad you listen to your wife. You know, I tell I, when friends get married, I say the key to a successful marriage is you have to start off with the assumption the wife is always right. You get you got to listen <laughs> to her. That uh, I haven't talked to many people who worked on the Philly Stock Exchange. That's interesting too. What uh, were you like a, a, a specialist, a market maker? Or? So so I worked at a specialist post for for Susquehanna, which. Right. And, and Mike, let me tell you something. You talk about experience. So, so you know, I'm there as a, as a you know young teenager, early 20s, and and in the morning we had math class. We went to work, and they paid for our lunch, which was awesome breakfast and lunch. Susquehanna is a great shop. And then, um, and right after work, we would go play poker. So, <laughs> I mean, if you if you just think about you know risk reward and game theory and math and just the application of all that on a daily basis, that really stimulated my interest because because before that. I didn't know much about investing at all, and um, but that really stimulated my interest in the markets, uh, my interest especially in risk and reward and the behavior of the markets, which I think is something that's overlooked and maybe a topic we can discuss later. But um, but yeah, it really was a, a great start. And and to your point, always listen to your wife. <laughs> well, talking about market behavior, George, uh, what a what a crazy week. Um, but what I think is funny, you know, I one of the columns I edit is uh, this guy, Cameron Christ. He writes a column called Macro Man. He actually took off uh, for a week and he came back to work the day after the CPI uh, numbers, you know, threw everything upside down. And, he, you know, his column was about like, what did I miss? You know, the. the 
the equity market's actually exactly where it was before I left. Yields are exactly where they were, you know, because you had right. that, you had like this 5% run up in the S&P 500, like in the four days before the CPI report on Tuesday. So I'm curious how big of a game changer you think it was, um, despite this, this massive volatility we saw afterwards. Um, has that much changed in your thinking about, you know, the, the Fed's reaction function for the rest of this cycle? So I, th- I think it did, Mike. And here's why. I usually don't like short-term data points. I really like long-term data points. But I will say within the context of this week, the market was very much geared up. And I don't, I don't mean just the stock market. The stock market, as you mentioned, but also the bond market, uh, even in the preferred market with longer duration securities, people were making significant bets that the CPI number was going to come in late and and the Fed was going to back off. And, and if you think about really for most of this year, the market has been waiting for the Fed to pivot. They've been waiting for Powell to give in. And I'm just going to cite this one thing, and I think I sent it to you earlier, and, and I keep pointing to it. There was an exchange when, when Powell gave testimony to the Senate, and Senator Shelby asked him directly, directly back then, is your leadership prepared to do what it takes to get inflation under control and protect price stability? And Powell gave a very respectful nod to Volcker. And then he said, I hope history will record that the answer to your question is yes. But the key thing is Shelby pressed on and he said, are you prepared to do what it takes? And Powell gave a little more of a sheepish yes, but he did say yes. And I think really that's where the line of the line in the sand was and, and kind of the part where the market is kind of missing in terms of the expectation, and that was for March, and it's already September. I mean, this has been six months now, the market wanting a pivot, and they're not getting it. So I think to your point in the short term, that really was how the market was positioned over the last month. Credit spreads rallied a little bit, tightened up, and uh, the stock market rallied. And I think that's why they really want any indication that the Fed can kind of shift course. George, I feel like all of this talk of, are we going to have a Fed pivot? Are we not? Has inflation peaked? It's led to a lot of near-term volatility. But one of the big themes for this year is probably going to be that bonds have done so poorly. So where are you looking for that income? Is it still in any part of bonds? Is it dividend stocks? Are you looking at cash? Yeah, and, and and so this is this is a great point, and, and and our perspective I think is a good one, not because we are brilliant investors by any stretch, but because we have this flexible approach and we are allowed to increase cash and we are allowed to wait it out. Last year, as as the markets rallied, our cash balance grew and grew up to over twenty percent, and so at the end of two thousand and one, we had twenty percent in cash, over twenty percent cash, and the reason was there wasn't a lot of value there. Uh, credit spreads had tightened, the stock market had ripped, um, and and there just wasn't a lot. So so fortunately, we were able to. We we believe in liquidity. But liquidity is like oxygen for us, and and when we have it, you know, we feel like feel great, feel like we can breathe. And we did well last year. I mean, we were up almost ten percent, you know, in the nine percent range, and and that was a great ranking in our in our category too last year. So it's not like we missed out on much. Uh, so when the volatility kicked in for the most part this year. We had liquidity available. And yes, to your point, around the June timeframe, when things really blew out from a spread standpoint, we did put some money to work. And I'd like to talk, you know, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about what we bought uh, specifically, not specific names, but in general. But just to your point, th- this market is very, very different. So the last eight times that the S&P was down in a calendar year, bonds finished up. And so it cushioned the blow for everybody. And it was, you know, a diversifier. And we haven't had that share, as you well know. And now bonds are down a lot. And and it, this could be the worst year in recent history, for sure, maybe in many, many decades that, that bonds have been down this much. And that's really different. So that correlation rising between stocks and bonds in a down market was something that we didn't know that that would happen. And that's not why we went to cash. But we were glad that we had the cash. And again, bonds were so overpriced if you look back now and if you look at the yields you can get today versus just six months ago. So we were glad that we had that flexible process. Yeah, that's a pretty high cash level, 20%, you said.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, George, I'm famous around here for asking like 12 part questions. So so I got bad news for you. I, I got one coming for you. Do you have like an assistant who can take notes notes on this question? I, but, I, I can do it. I'm my own assistant. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I'll, I'll make it easy for you. I'm just going to I'll just monologue a little bit like here, like a villain in a movie. And then you, you tell me where I'm where I'm wrong and, and, and what your reaction is to to what I'm going to say, because. I'm kind of fascinated, you know, as you say, you, your fund, you can go, your strategy uh, can go as much as 40% equities. Looking on your website, you're at a little less than 30% as of the end of June. So not quite bullish on equities, it would seem. Um, but wow, 51.7% in high yield corporate credit. Um, and to me, I think that's fascinating. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, credit guys on the show as much as we should. So I want to sort of unpack what the credit markets are signaling right now, because, um, you know, for equity investors, they often look at the the high yield market, especially as sort of that canary in the coal mine. You know, spreads started blowing out before the market top in 07. They started, you know, creeping higher before the dot-com uh, bust in 2000. I'm looking this year, and uh, at least according to our index, uh, you know the the spread on high yield uh, corporates right now, according to the Bloomberg index, is I think it's like 450 basis points. And for listeners who don't know what that means, that's basically just the the extra yield on uh, high yield uh, bonds compared to Treasuries. So, so George, to me, that doesn't seem like a canary in the coal mine screaming re- recession just yet. You know, the spreads are wi- a lot wider than what where they started the year, but they were very tight to start the year. So I'm curious just, yeah. you know, A, you know, what are the spreads telling you as far as like a macro signal about a recession that that investors in other asset classes uh, should should be thinking about? But also, you know, the last time spreads blew out, it was, it was mostly that energy sector uh, that was the driver of that. So is that is that signal from the credit markets? Do you think broken since energy companies um, are a big component of high yield, but they're they're doing really well these days? Wow, excellent question. Many points, and they're all worth discussing for sure. So so number one, real quick, I think it is it's a little misleading when we look at our high yield exposure in our strategy, and and the only reason why I'll say that is that. We generally tend to focus on double B and single B securities, so we really don't delve too far down in the triple C's into right, that right. you know higher level of high yield. The second thing is our duration is a lot shorter than many of the benchmarks, and then the third, there is a little bit of a cheat code in in the bond market, and 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 a great way to add value, especially in these types of markets. And so cheat codes. Are, I have a fourteen year old son, so I might throw out some like cheat code type <laughs> words or mid and peak, like they have all this. He's, lingo a, that I'm he's a gamer, I guess, huh? Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And so, so, so the cheat code in the bond market for me and for our strategy is 
look, you can find companies. So, 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 so where can you limit risk or where can you lower risk in a high yield security? Well, you can find certain smaller securities because we're, we are a small fund at the moment and we can buy these smaller securities, um, smaller issues, and you can find companies that have more cash than debt on the balance sheet. That is the cheat code. So when I go to bed at night, I'm not worried about the great majority of the high yield quote unquote bonds in our portfolio going bankrupt. I'm not really taking a, a, a huge bet. I'm getting paid for that extra credit spread, but I'm not making a huge bet like the economy has to do well. I literally can go to sleep at night and I know, for example, that the great majority of our bonds are going to get paid off because, it, because the cash is already on the balance sheet. They're managed by companies that are free cash flow positive and managed by management teams that have a great track record of capital allocation. And so that's the ultimate margin of safety for us. And the good thing there is that, you know, as Ben Graham said, the purpose of the margin of safety is to render the forecast unnecessary. And so I don't have to project inflation rates or where the where interest rates are going or what the economy is going to do. If you focus on that company being able to pay off that piece of debt, again, you you, have, you eliminate a lot of other concerns. So that's one of the cheat codes that we use and one of the ways that we've had value over the past 20 years of managing this type of strategy. To your point, yes, credit, credit spreads are absolutely a signal. It's something we should all watch out for. I'll give you two schools of thought here. Number one, credit spreads are wider. They should be. Uh, the economic situation, broadly speaking, from an earnings standpoint, is a lot more uncertain today than it's been in a long time. And so credit spread should be wider. Now, the flip side of that argument is that interest rates were so low for so long that many or most companies were able to refi at really, really low rates and they extended their debt, debt balances out. That's good in the near term. So I wouldn't expect to see default rates kick up a lot in the immediate near term. That said, there are a lot of zombie companies, companies that cannot cover their interest expense through uh, operating earnings or EBITDA. And that, that to me, again, means that you really need to be a good, like I would never buy high yield broadly. I wouldn't, I, it, look, I'm biased, right? I'm an active manager. I wouldn't buy a high yield ETF for the sole purpose of, I don't trust all the companies that are in the ETF. I trust this company instead of that company. So that's my view. And I feel like we can ferret out and find value in that context. Um, but that's just two schools of thought. Yes, I still think credit spreads are a very important indicator. Energy is a big part. And to your point, going back to 14, 15, 16, they blew up a lot of the energy credits and went bankrupt. And um, and and that's honestly been one of the reasons why why that sector has kind of stayed so cheap, given how well they've performed um, this year. So those were just my thoughts on those topics. So if you need me to dig in further, let me know. Yeah, I, I did. I also wanted to ask you, you know, when uh, and I know you said, you know, it's you're not going to go out on a limb and try to predict inflation or, or pick the path of interest rates. But fingers crossed, I think we all have to kind of hope that maybe the peaks in for inflation, at least. And if, if you're looking out over five, 10 years, you know, uh, f again, fingers crossed. But boy, I you got to assume inflation is going to come down. Interest rates are going to come down uh, with it. So does this type of moment in time make you um, sort of bullish on, on longer maturities, you know, especially with new issuance, if, if you can lock in a really attractive rate for, you know, 12, 15 years, you know, does it change your thinking on maturities at all when, when yields are this high? It's, it certainly should. So, so the way we view it is obviously we're getting paid a lot more now than we were just a handful of months ago for just about every flavor of, of, income, which is which is great. I think Intel's dividend just hit 5% today, for example. Um, if you look at short rates, money market rates are going to pay about 4% soon. And, you know, so if you, you look at the two-year, you name it across the board. So so to your point, Mike, yes, longer duration. Now, now, the thing with longer duration bonds is that the yield curve is flattening. So those rates are not up as much as shorter term rates. Um, so that's something that we factor into as well. So the way I look at it is, what can I get for how much risk do I have to assume for a certain level of income? And now if I can get four or five or 6% from a two-year convertible bond that's busted, that has a great balance sheet, you know, that really might be my, my bar. My, so, so, so my low end bar or my, 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 the basis for our fund is really, okay, what can I get for free? <laughs> and, and for free, 
it's not everyone's definition of free. This is a typical Philly guy, by the way, Emily. This is how Philly guys think. (laughs) Who's who's got the free who's got the free fries with the cheesesteak or the free drink? I I, I know exactly where he's coming from. (laughs) They're budget friendly. I like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so if you met my father, you would certainly understand he still has his lunch money from grade school, you know, but um, that, that's just the context. Seriously, though, it's funny because I think about this a lot, Mike. This is actually a pretty good point. So I grew up really close with my grandparents. I would go to do concrete work with my grandfather. I'd go home. I'd have dinner with my parents and my grandparents. And my grandmom was so stigmatized and her whole family was by the Great Depression and yeah. that le- that really left a mark. Like you did not waste a piece of food in the house. Like that was like, <laughs> you know, that was a mortal sin. Yeah. I would have to go to confession if I didn't eat all my dinner. You know, but my um, my dad had a big big beer belly, and and he used to it, it, he passed away. But he used to call that his savings account. Uh, you know, he, he that's what he was going <laughs> to live live off of if, if things got uh, lean. But you're right. He never never <laughs> left a single crumb on a on a plate ever. No, absolutely. And so, so you wonder like why you think a certain way or, you know, why your behavior or why your decision-making process is a certain way. And that honestly, what was, was a big part of it. That's why my bias is what it is. So, so I'm constantly looking for, for what can I get without taking any risk? And so I start with really good balance sheets and, and, and we really focus in on that for this product, of course. And, um, and again, where, where, where can I, where can I get the most amount of risk? If, if a two year bond from a convertible, you know, that's a convertible security is going to give me four or 5%. And I have up the upside that convertible, that optionality that a convertible bond gives us. Wow. I I would much rather have that risk reward asymmetrically positive risk reward profile versus, you know, maybe a $25 preferred that's yielding 5% an equivalent yield. But to your point, yes, at some point it will make sense to go a little longer. And and we found certain securities. Okay, one more cheat code. I got one more cheat code for you. So <laughs> w- when you look at, so, so we, we tend to only buy bonds that are trading at a discount, which is weird. But if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So when bonds were overvalued, we weren't paying 110, 120, 130. We just wouldn't do it. So what we do is wait until they become discounted. Now, to your point, Michael, some of the long bonds are trading at 65, 70 cents on the dollar for companies that are with outrageous balance sheets, outrageous balance sheets, good balance sheets that, that, you know, the one, I can't tell you the name, but the company is 14 billion in cash with less than 2 billion in debt. And sure, I'll go long in that name because I know that that balance sheet is rock solid and, and, and the yield's great. And then the cheat code is if you can find um, bonds, or we only buy bonds, we try to only buy bonds that have change of control provisions in the indenture and in the, um, in the prospectus and the covenants. And if you do that, and let's just say that company gets bought out, you're getting 101 on that bond. And so there's another way where you can add a lot of value. And you may only have one of those every couple of years or five years, maybe. But, but again, same thing with the convertible thing. If, if you have a convert where the stock takes off and, and they do really well, I mean, we've purchased some bonds at $75 and sold them at $250. I mean, that, so, so again, we're looking, but we are, but to go back to the point of being cheap, we don't want to pay for that, obviously. We want to wait till the market gets busted and it's pretty busted at the moment. So that's how, hopefully that helps you in terms of how we frame those types of decisions. On the equity side, how are you thinking about margin pressure as inflation remains hot? I feel like there's a lot of stories that I write about people talking about how the Fed's reaction to hot inflation is going to hurt stock prices. But what about earnings? Is that the next shoe to fall for equities? Yeah, Emily, great, great, great question. And I'll tell you why, because, you know, if you think of what we just went through and what, mm-hmm. so so. If we just ask ourselves, why is this environment so difficult? Why is it so different? Well, we go through COVID, and you know, if you think about how much money the government pumped into the pumped into the economy, and how much liquidity, and how easy the Fed was over that period, it, it obscured a lot of the traditional data. And I think that's that's part of the problem now is that you really cannot separate the Fed's bailing out of the market over the last twenty years versus you know, the, the, the surge in the money supply over the last since COVID and the result. So let's talk about the result first. The result was earnings went crazy. Sales, sales went nuts for, for most companies. And, and if you look at some of the, you know, if you look at your DES4 screen on Bloomberg, 
uh, just to give Bloomberg a little plug, you can see the quarter over quarter. We love a plug. <laughs> yeah, you can give the, you can see the quarter over quarter. We'll, we'll, we'll allow that, George. We'll allow the Bloomberg plug. Okay, cool, cool. Awesome. Um, so, so you can see the year over year, quarter over quarter results, and you see these spectacular numbers in 2021. The problem now is that is that sustainable? And my question, my argument, and to answer your question, is that a lot of it is not. So, so on. So, what we've seen so far in terms of decline was almost all PE decline so far. The problem, the problematic thing about the market is if that E declines from here, which I think there's a good chance for a lot of companies it will, and so that could lead to a longer period of either going sideways. Are going down. And, and I keep saying this line over and over. I can see the ceiling clearly. I, we can see peak earnings clearly because it's there in 2021. What we can't see at the moment is the floor. And that's partially the scary part because to your point, margins are under pressure. Uh, if you look at sales, sales have peaked and, and now we're coming off peak. So what does that mean? And so you have, you know, a, a group of factors that lead me to be concerned about the E at this point. And, and that's where I think we are. And then just to take that one step per- further, everybody talks in aggregate about the E, about the S&P's earnings. And we really don't because we look at, you know, we look at company by company. And so we want companies that have sustainable earnings. But if you strip out the energy sector from, you know, last quarter's earnings, last quarter's earnings were negative. The, gr- the earnings growth was negative. Sorry, the earnings growth was negative, and and so you know I think that's really important. You strip that out if you tend, if you want to strip out the apples and Microsofts of the world, and you leave you know the other you know four hundred plus companies. This earnings season really was not that good, and and I think that's that's you know the other part that the market is kind of kind of resisting at the moment. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, George, when I look at sort of the, the market reaction uh, ever since, you know, the, the worst days of COVID even, um, you know, and and coming into this year, we had this few months there where where the value factor was just totally outperforming growth. Um, then it kind of reversed back uh, and, and growth started outperforming value again. Now it's, yeah. you know, I'm guessing it's going to swing back the other way now that in- inflation is, is lasting longer than everyone expected. But to me, you know, if you look at it from sort of 30,000 feet, I feel like investors are just craving to get back to that world they're familiar with, that that nice, juicy bull market between the financial crisis and COVID, 
where, you know, sure, GDP growth wasn't great, but interest rates were low uh, and growth stocks were just the only game in town. I I wonder if we're all in for a reckoning that those days are, are, aren't coming back, that we're in a whole new paradigm now, and it's a very uncomfortable situation to try to wrap your head around. How, how are you thinking about that sort of reversion to, to normalcy? Um, you know, is it, or do you think we'll ever get back to that scenario where, you know, the, the, that decade of, of just a, a, a roaring bull market and, and low yields, or are we, are we stuck in a new sort of secular environment here? Yeah, and, and and this this is an important topic, mainly because of again what's going on in the last few years. So what really drove it? I you know I tend to believe that the Fed obviously. So, so if you think about Drucker Miller's comment regarding liquidity, that liquidity means everything, and and he doesn't even believe necessarily that it's as important as earnings, which I would kind of debate with him a little bit. But anyway, he's a much better investor than I am. But liquidity is really and George. Important. If, if you can get him on the show, you can debate him. You 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 set that up <laughs> oh, for that us. That would we'll, be awesome. We'll yeah, yeah, he seems like a. <laughs> Maybe if we offer him a cheesesteak or a Denix uh, brisket of beef sandwich, we can uh, <laughs> we can get him down here. Um, but anyway, so, so so if you think about if you think about those periods, those boom and bust, and again, you know, start off my career in one, you know, we saw one in the housing bubble, and then we saw one now, and you know, the Fed really played a pretty big role. And where they play the role is again on the PE side, on the valuation side. Excess liquidity finds its way into the craziest of assets. And we and we saw that. So we saw the cryptos rally and the SPACs rally and the meme stocks rally. All of that, in my opinion, was malinvestment that was caused by excess liquidity. There was just too much money floating around, not enough good places to put it. And most of the people who were investing that those funds were first-time investors or novice investors. And and it just again that that's not healthy. So so from my standpoint of being this value investor with traditional philosophies, that was not that to me. That's the anomaly. That's that's the period. That's the tech bubble, you know, and that's the tech bubble that came back, and it will come back again. To your point, it might take another twenty years, but yeah, I don't think in terms of what growth investors are looking for, they anchored. So so the behavioral aspect or or or, um, or de- definition of that is anchoring, and they're anchored to a point. Um, or to a spot in the market that just is no longer there. And I think I say this all the time, we can't anchor, you know, take into account new information and, and you know, let's change our decision, you know, change, change our mind, change our decision. And, and I think that's important for the market to understand today. You can't anchor to that point because that's gone. I don't think, again, everybody wants a Fed pivot, but I don't think that type of excess liquidity is going to enter the market anytime soon, not until we see some more, uh, demand destruction, you know, maybe declines in in earnings, you know, maybe some future declines in 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 those stocks, and and you see investors obviously like Kathy Wood and you know talk talk down, you know, they really want the Fed to kind of back off her and Elon Musk, and it's you know they both have growth backgrounds, they want the Fed to pivot um, to kind of give that fuel back into the growth stocks, but ultimately I think what this has done today is it's prioritized, it's moved the sh- it shifted the priority from liquidity down to earnings. And there's always that tug of war there, in my opinion. And so right now, your earnings better be good. <laughs> and if not, there's no safety net now. There's no safety net of liquidity that's going to levitate your stock at a certain level. Your stock will go down. And we're seeing it today with a lot of commodity companies that are starting to pre-announce. Um, you know, I can mention it because we don't own it, but like New Corporate announced today and Eastman Chemical yesterday, Dow Chemical. Like you're seeing some of these companies starting to report and starting starting to show this degradation in E. And and so I think that's where we are. So to your point, Mike, no, I don't think we go right back. I think, again, that's just people anchoring to a point that we're past right now. And so what you want to own are really good companies, really good balance sheets, really good management teams. And a lot of those companies only existed because of excess liquidity. And that's yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. Well, George, regular listeners of the show will know that the one thing we anchor to around here is the crazy things we saw in markets. So I do want to segue to that a little bit early because I got a sneak peek at your crazy things, and they really they really speak to the uh, you know the actually the important things of the market, which uh, these days are the crazy things. Uh, funnily enough, so talk to us about the craziest things you've seen in markets recently. 
Yeah, and, and I think it, it really is just going back to, to what I just mentioned. You know, it was, I mean, it, I'm, I'm not sure if, you, if you're on Twitter at all, but some of the absolutely crazy videos that we saw from the crypto community, from, you know, the meme stock community, and just really, you know, just, just things that were completely detached from reality. And I'm sure you've covered this over the past year, so this is definitely not a new topic. But yeah, I, I just think, you know, ultimately, the craziest thing is, is that, you know, the market tends to not want to be realistic. And, and, and again, they do want to anchor. And so stripping out energy right now, you strip out mega, mega cap tech under the surface, you know, the earnings picture is going to be very important over the next few quarters. And that's, again, where I think the market can be a little, um, a little bit disappointed when they see the impacts of inflation, when they see the impacts of a strong dollar. You know, re- financial reality needs to step in and kind of tame the craziness in the market. Now, taming the craziness in the market probably means a decline, which is not fun, but, but we love it. I mean, honestly, for, for our strategy, we love volatility. We love when things go down because that's when we can kind of take advantage of, of the free money that might be out there. Well, you know, all of that sort of gets me back to the point about that that signal that comes from the credit markets sometimes, you know, where you'll see uh, spreads widen aggressively long before the stock market peaks. And I wonder if there's something to be said that, you know, in, in credit markets, you're only dealing with professional investors. You don't have a bunch of kids on Reddit, teenagers, you know, uh, pumping up meme stocks. And, you know, and in general, just the the you know, retail investing population in general, which is, you know, less sophisticated, but has gotten so much more influential over the years. Is that is that crazy talk to you th- to think that, you know, there maybe the credit markets are a little less crazy and, and that's why that signal works. There's a little bit more sobriety there, a little bit more sort of professional analysis uh, that's driving things than, say, the, the stock market, especially these days when the, you know, the Reddit crowds are, are running the show. I, I think that's a fair point. If you, if, you, if you met, you know, my co-PM, Scott Ellis, Greg Zappin, if you met Mark Eppenstall over at Penn Mutual, you know, and, and Jim Fonks and, and, and our team, you know, these are, these are traditional, you know, bond guys and then really good credit guys. And, and, and they do a really good job. They are very rational, very sensible. And, and so just using them as an example, I would say, absolutely. There's not a lot of um, you know, running around, like, you know, screaming, trading, nothing like that. It's, it's a pretty calm environment. And, um, and yeah, I think I would agree with that. There, there, there is though. So, you know, just going back to it, you know, there, there will always be these peaks and troughs in terms of an interest in a given area. And I think one of the things specific with high yield to your point is that there was so much demand for yield because there was none for a long period of time. So we've kind of broken that now. Now that we see, you know, again, money market rates at 4%, we're seeing a curve, yield curve that's looking at, three, you know, 3.75 plus, you know, throughout most of the curve. And, um, and, and so, again, I think that mentality should break a little bit in terms of, um, again, there's available yield. So hopefully people won't have to be as desperate because what happens is if you think about the psychology where you're like, well, I, if you target a yield and say, look, I want to get five or 6%. And if you said that over the last few years, the only way to get it was to extend duration or go down in credit quality. Those were the only two ways you were ta- you were taking more risk period. So that, you know, so, so, but, you know, just going back to your point, yeah, credit spreads are very important. I do think, you know, the credit markets uh, tend to be a little more sane, but they can get crazy too. I just think at this point, um, it's, it's definitely, it's certainly not, um, you know, yeah. the same as, as the, the growth markets from last year. The, the relative value of the craziness is, uh, <laughs> is uh, mm-hmm. pretty wide. All right, Emily, now's your real test as a professional financial journalist. Uh, you got to bring a good crazy thing to this podcast to, to really gain some respect. So, so what do you got for us? All right. So this was something that I saw on Bloomberg News. It involves... Uh, Elon Musk. So his ex-girlfriend, um, I read this article a couple days ago, ex-girlfriend is selling off um, photos and memorabilia. This is his college ex-girlfriend on an online auction site. Mike, do we have time to play a little bit of The Price is Correct? Uh, I, the Price is Precise, <laughs> I believe. Emily, oh, is it The Price is Precise? <laughs> Emily, Emily. <laughs> Well, Donna likes prices correct. Anything but prices right, because that that's going to get us. Uh, that's going to get me punched by Bob Barker. This is you've 
not only did you pass the test, I think you get 100% because this is my crazy thing, too. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well. Though I think I can beat you on the prices precise, but we got to get George to... Uh, I don't know which item you're going to okay. go with. Is it the so, the birthday card? It is. It's the birthday card. It's signed Love Elon. Um, and this, I guess, it was the ex girlfriend in college. It was her birthday. So. All right. I did. I did do you one better though because I actually looked up the auction site, and I found the actual live bidding on this uh, on this particular item, <laughs> and it says Happy Birthday, Jennifer. AKA Boo Boo, love Elon. And I gotta say, if we were ever to have like a, a crazy thing Hall of Fame or a crazy thing museum, Elon Musk would get like his own wing of that of that Absolutely. museum for, for this. So I, I think we just gotta stick George with the the prices correct here. Uh, George, what do you think that's, the that's a good one. what do you think the yeah. current bid is for an Elon Musk signed birthday card? to Boo Boo from college. And by the way, Elon went to UPenn, so he's a Philly guy too. And Emily, you yeah, know what? Yeah, you, a little bit. You can play too, Emily, because I don't think you have the live bidding price in, in front of you I like don't. I did. I did not look it up, so props to you, Mike. I can't cheat. Oh, we can't, we're not allowed to cheat? Okay. Um, <laughs> he's, this guy always <laughs> with the cheat code. He's, I know, I another, know. Um, another way you can tell he's from Philly. <laughs> All right, $10,000? Holy cow. Emily, what's your I, bid? I... What's, what do you think the live bid is? I, I gave I gave away my poker face there. Uh, 20,000. 20,000. So in the story, the, the, the current bidding was at 10,000. So George uh, George is pretty right wow. on. Wow. Yeah. And I yeah. did not cheat. I promise you I did not cheat. I actually, real quick though, Michael, I do have one. I didn't get like a really crazy one. I didn't get the point, even though I listened to the show. But I got one for you real quick. All in right. honor of the queen. The crown estate is estimated to be worth over $34.3 in assets. Now it's, belongs to King Charles. He will not have to pay a dime in inheritance tax. That's pretty cool. Usually it's 40%. Isn't that that's crazy? Cool. Wow, that is nuts. That's, yeah. That, that's a that's, crazy that's, I mean, I guess it's all that real estate. I, I read somewhere there, the, like the yeah. um, the biggest uh, landowner in Scotland, for one thing. And all those castles. I mean, how mm-hmm. do you even put a value on, you know... The, the, the right. value of those those castles. Although I don't know, I don't know who's gonna exactly. who's gonna buy. You got a limited uh, uh, market for those. Maybe Elon Musk would buy one. But anyway, Thanks. current bid and there's three hours uh, fifty nine minutes left on this auction, uh, Emily. In case you want to make a bid. Oh my uh, gosh, I have to go do that. Twelve thousand one hundred and and three dollars for the Elon Musk. Love letter. Emily, I don't know much about your romantic life, but if uh, if if you had any significant others from college, did you save their their birthday cards and <laughs> mementos? Yeah, I have some mementos. Well, we ha- we're still together, so I'll oh. keep all the pictures well, of us yeah. though. <laughs> you 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 better save them that. You, One day better... if he's the next Elon Musk, that'd be nice. You you, <laughs> you better better save them. <laughs> You got to push him, Emily. You got to push him. Push yeah. him and he'll be the next. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I think that is all our time for the show. Uh, George, great to catch up with you. Emily, I, it makes me homesick to hear George with that Philly accent of his. Go birds. Go birds. Go birds. <laughs> Before you leave, though, George, I got to hear you say, when you go to the faucet and you turn it on and you put a glass under it, what's coming out? Water. Water, water, of course. What else would it be? It's water. <laughs> it's water. I know. You, you, go, you, go, you go get water out of the creek. Out know? of the creek. <laughs> what you got to do. And then, George, if you want to, uh, say you get a six-pack of beer and you want to keep it cold <laughs> and you, you got an appliance in your kitchen, what, what do you, what's that appliance called? Fridge? A refrigerator. Am I supposed to say it differently? Refrigerator. Refrigerator. Yeah. yeah. No, you're saying it right. Yeah. You're saying it right. Okay. Okay. Finally, a guy. Finally, a guy on the show without an accent. Emily. Mike, where do you go to supermarket? What's what's your favorite supermarket? Ah, uh, boy, where are you going with this? Wegner's. Acme. Yeah. Acme. It's so funny because when I first moved up to New York from Philly in uh, years ago, um, it, it, my coworkers were like, "Are you from the South?" 
<laughs> what are you talking about? No, I'm from Philly. What is that accent? Right, right. What is that accent? It's got to be oh, from far God. away. Uh, <laughs> yeah. fi- finally, a guest with the proper pronunciation of all the, the important words. Uh, George Cipollone, so great to catch up with you. Uh, thanks for sharing your time with us and your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Thanks, George. Acabe. Acabe. <laughs> What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.